in our last episode. After a trial that ended favorably for three of Charlie Berger's allies, gangsters so feared by communities in southern Illinois, Berger himself faced major upset when he was tried and sentenced to death. He spent the last months of his life behind bars until the day of his hanging finally arrived. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 31, Part 2 Daylight found Charlie Berger haggard, still talking. Though his voice remained even, it was clear from his foot movements and the tensing of his neck muscles that he was very nervous. And when Arlie O. Boswell came to talk to him later in the morning, Berger exploded. In Boswell's words, I walked into where he was, and he had a bathrobe on and was walking up and down in his cell. I said, good morning, Charlie. How are you feeling? He stopped just like he had been hit. He said, how in the goddamn hell you think you'd be feeling if you knew you only had 30 more minutes to live? Well, I said, Charlie, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way at all. That's an expression that I always use. I'm sorry. Except to say goodbye, this last visit was a wasted effort on Boswell's part, since Berger refused to give him the names and dates relating to the Price murders, with one exception. With death only minutes away, the gangster could not refrain from taking one last swing at the man he felt was helping send him to the gallows. Art Newman is the man you want, he said. While Boswell and Berger were saying goodbye, Sheriff Coleman and his deputies arrived from Williamson County. Because he had helped drop Rado Millich to his doom, Joe Schaefer was asked to set the trap, and said it he did. In the streets, on buildings, within the stockade, armed guards scanned the crowd. At approximately 9.45, Sheriff Pritchard led the condemned man down the jailhouse steps, around the corner, to the scaffold erected beneath Berger's cell. Before mounting those 13 steps, Berger did not fail to notice the wicker basket where soon his body would lie. One reporter wrote that he spat into it. True or not, the gesture would have been fitting, considering that he had an audience of a half thousand ticket holders within the stockade. Countless other spectators perched on the rooftop of the city hall, and still others crowding the windows of the building across the way. Faces appeared in trees and at the windows of the jail cells. First to climb the steps was Orrin Coleman. Jim Pritchard followed. Next came Phil Hanna, followed by Sheriff W.T. Flanagan of Jackson County. The fifth man up was Charlie Berger. A deputy from Franklin County walked behind him. His eyes never leaving the Bible in his hand, Rabbi J.R. Mazur of East St. Louis slowly ascended the wooden steps. He was followed by another of Pritchard's deputies. After walking to his assigned spot over the trapdoor, Berger smartly executed a left face, acknowledged several in the audience, and waited. As one of the deputies knelt to strap the prisoner's legs, Phil Hanna stepped forward to ask forgiveness for the terrible task he was about to perform. Berger said he had forgiven everybody, thanks to the rabbi's counseling. You're a great old boy, he said to Hanna moments later, when the big man pulled tight the straps around his chest and arms. Looking to the sky, where tufts of clouds drifted upon the blue, Berger may have remembered that Rado Millich was also hanged on a beautiful day. 
That, however, didn't stop the Montenegrin from lashing out at Berger and Boswell while tearing his typed speech into shreds. This time, there was to be no speech, and no raving as had marked the sanity hearing. Only sky above, faces below, and a man in a blue serge suit standing on a scaffold between trapdoor and infinity, and one timeless remark. It's a beautiful world. Other things he said that morning were duly reported and quickly forgotten, but that one line, heard only by a few, would make the front pages and be repeated in sermons, on street corners, and in homes, until at last it became a part of the burger legend, a counterweight, like the groceries left at the doors of the poor, to his many victims. Phil Hanna had visited Berger in his cell only a few minutes earlier. Apparently, this time the procedure went as scheduled, and the appropriate narcotic was administered. When asked if he wanted a white or black hood, Berger took the opportunity to direct a faint jab at an old foe, the late S. Glenn Young. Black, he said with a flourish, adding that he was no Ku Klux. Prior to pulling the hood over the victim's head, Hannah was careful to keep the well-oiled, expertly noosed rope behind his back. He always did that, out of respect. His display of good manners on such a grim occasion may have struck his fellow executioners as being a trifle, old-fashioned, if not downright absurd. Was Berger finally at peace now that the black hood was over his head and the clock ticked toward the appointed time of 10 a.m.? Tradition would have us believe so, but not so, said Sheriff Flanagan, who noticed the withering death stare, half sneer, half grin, that the condemned man leveled toward Jim Pritchard just before the hood was lowered. With the end of his life only minutes away, Berger asked that they hurry it up. That wish was granted at 9.48, according to Alphaeus Gustin, one of the many from Harrisburg who had driven to Benton for the occasion. Watching the drama from the top of a building, Willard St. John saw the rope spin like a top after the trap was sprung. The man who had set the trap did not see it function. Assuming that the execution would not occur until 10 a.m., Joe Schaefer had heeded Judge Hartwell's request to go out and get some of the men in here that I want in. Minutes later, as the last public hanging in Illinois was underway, Schaefer recalled, I looked around and the judge was trying to get in the city hall window. I couldn't get in at all. I missed it all. Despite the fact that Berger died owing him money, Charles V. Parker warned his employees that day in Harrisburg not to make wisecracks. He warned them not even to comment about the hanging in Benton. Five minutes after the trapdoor crashed under his feet, Berger was pronounced dead by the doctors. Briefly, Boswell saw the body as it was carried in the wicker basket to the hearse. I wanted to be sure, through curiosity only, that his neck was broken, Boswell recalled. A close friend of the state's attorney, Willard St. John, did not understand the reason for the hats on the wicker basket as it was carried along. No doubt, this was a mark of respect for the dead. Speed cops stationed near the ambulance were taunted by several men who, St. John believed, were gangsters. This was not likely, considering the number of armed guards Jim Pritchard had stationed throughout the area. Berger's last trip to St. Louis did not begin immediately. His body was taken to a Benton undertaking parlor, where it remained while the hearse, doubling as an ambulance, was sent out to pick up an old woman who had been knocked down by a barn door on that windy morning. Meanwhile, with her head in her hands, Rachel Shomsky waited inside the mortuary. 
The delay gave Boswell the opportunity to inspect the corpse in the wicker basket more closely. The neck was visibly stretched, he said, and a telltale depression in the side of the neck where the knot had been was proof that Phil Hanna had, as usual, done his job well. No question about it, his neck was broken. At last, the hearse and its police escort began the long trip west. Maintaining a speed of about 40 miles an hour, the entourage reached the Chesed Shell Ameth Cemetery in University City just before 4 p.m. There, about 75 friends and relatives had gathered. Although no rabbi was present, one of Charlie's brothers, probably Samuel, read a Hebrew prayer for the dead. One reporter was still not satisfied that Berger had paid in full for the chaos he had brought to a region already known nationwide for its lawlessness. Elva Jones of the Marion Evening Post harked back to the fiery sermons and lantern-lit churches for the proper summing up of a man who had once reminded the reporter of the Western heroes of the movies. But those kind words were written when Berger was lord of the manor at Shady Rest. Having heard so much about the gang leader, Jones was surprised to feel safe in his presence. Gun-toting thugs alert to the first hint of trouble remained on guard, and that fact may have contributed to this sense of security. That interview had been in Golden October, or more than two months before the murders of Laurie and Ethel Price. Now, with the trapdoor so recently sounding for all the world like a shotgun blast enhanced by a megaphone, Jones saw the need for a second opinion. Looking back over events of months past, he now recalled that all along he knew Berger was crazy, blood crazy, man crazy, murder crazy. Jones had been denied the privilege of hearing the gang leader that last night in his cell tell one story after another. Such honor was reserved for Roy Alexander, who represented the same big city newspaper young Charlie had once hawked on the streets of St. Louis. Still, Jones wanted the last word and felt he had a right to it. In southern Illinois, Charlie Berger had loved and entertained and murdered and died, all in a dramatic fashion. Reflecting upon such a career, the crack reporter of the Marion Evening Post could do no less than inject the very spirit and drama of which the region was famous into his editorial. For his breakfast in hell, we'd suggest two bowls of TNT mixed with his favorite soup. For his dinner, the rat-tat-tat of machine gun fire as bullets pierce his malicious body and for supper, all the torment and anguish, grief and pain. In his zeal to write the last word on the enigmatic Charlie Berger, Elva Jones only added to the legend. It was left to Ray to pay the burial expenses, which amounted to $430, or so she claimed three years later while trying to beg a burial allowance from the government. Her request was refused, on the grounds that the deceased had served in no war, campaign, or expedition. In the cold print of a form letter, a legend lost some of its luster. Still, her claim application preceding those dull two inches of prose must have brought an admiring chuckle from her brother's ghost. She claimed to be Charlie Berger's widow. Chapter 32 A Bystander Who Had Stumbled Into a Nightmare After a delay of several months, the trial of the accused murderers of Ethel Price finally began in the afternoon of January 7, 1929, in the Williamson County Courthouse. 
R. Leo Boswell, who had earlier boasted he would hang Newman, had meanwhile suffered a defeat at the polls the preceding November. More recently, he had been indicted for conspiring to violate the National Prohibition Act and was awaiting the charges against him to fly, as he knew they would. Of the ten who were indicted, only four were actually tried, the others being either dead or still at large. The men, Art Newman, Freddie Wooten, Riley Simmons, and one other, were tried on two counts each of murder and two other counts of conspiracy to commit murder. By agreement with Boswell's successor, J. Roy Browning, Newman's attorney, Delos Duty, entered a plea of guilty on behalf of his client, as did his fellow attorneys for their own clients. Despite these guilty pleas, Judge Hartwell insisted on hearing the prosecution evidence before passing sentence, and that afternoon, Art Newman took the stand. Newman said Lori Price was abducted after Boswell told Berger the patrolman had sent a letter to the president of the Pocahontas Bank, promising to name those who had committed the robbery in return for the $2,500 reward being offered at the time. When confronted with this accusation, Price was quick to call Boswell a liar, but his accusers were not completely convinced. In the middle of January, Newman continued, Boswell again approached Berger, this time insisting that Lori Price had to be killed. The anxiety of the state's attorney was well-founded, for he had not only kept $2,700 in marketable bonds taken in the robbery, Newman said, but he had also shared the split in the stolen car racket operated by the Burger Gang, Price, and Boswell. The gang would steal the cars, Boswell would learn which of the stolen vehicles carried rewards, and those that did were invariably discovered by Price along the roadsides where the thieves had abandoned them. The three-way split of the rewards had proved very profitable for all concerned, according to Newman. Once Price started talking, his revelations, even those made unwittingly, could destroy them all. He had to be hushed up, and very quickly. To add salt to the wounds of the former state's attorney, who sat nearby chewing an unlighted cigar, Newman added some extra charges that seemed irrelevant to the Price case itself, but which, if true, would certainly indicate Boswell's involvement with the Burger Gang. On the night of April 12, 1926, Boswell, the witness testified, had met the gang at the County Line Roadhouse between West Frankfurt and Johnston City, and had told them to shoot hell out of Heron, and, while doing so, to kill John Ford, one of the poll watchers and a noted Klansman. A deputy circuit clerk of Williamson County, Ford had the bad habit of checking too closely into criminal records. A few days after the shootings, Boswell again met with the gangsters. Angry that they had killed the wrong Ford, John's brother Harland, he gave them the make of the man's car and told them the approximate time he drove to work from Heron to Marion. He also urged Ritter and Newman to visit the newly elected sheriff, Orrin Coleman, in his office for the purpose of feeling him out as to his stand on bootlegging. Later, when he learned they could get no answer from the taciturn ex-school teacher, Boswell said he would visit Coleman on his own. Apparently this effort was equally fruitless, for soon the word came down that both Coleman and Ford were to be killed. As could be expected, the charges created a sensation. Shaken by the mounting accusations, Boswell was quick to reply, If I've done all these things, I ought to be put away. If the officers believe one iota of it, and having known it for a long time, they have been so Morally negligent in the performance of their duty, in not having sworn out a warrant and had me arrested. 
The sensation created by these charges tended to overshadow details of the abduction and killing of Lori and Ethel Price. What Newman revealed about this crime matched, in general, the story told later by other defendants. As usual, he presented his role as that of a bystander who had stumbled into a nightmare. Sometime after midnight on January 17, 1927, two carloads of burger gangsters arrived at the patrolman's home in Scottsboro, a community just north of Marion. Several men went inside. Presently, Lori Price, Berger, Wooten, and Newman got into Newman's car. A short time later, Ethel Price, accompanied by Ernest Blue, Connie Ritter, Riley Alabama Simmons, and another man got into the second car. According to Newman, Price was first driven to Berger's home in Harrisburg. They went there, Berger told Simmons' pal Frank Schrader, to kill Jack Cruz. Both men were staying in the house at the time. Schrader ignored the order. One of the ten originally indicted for the Price killings, Schrader could not be found at the time of the trial. The charges against his co-defendant, Cruz, were dropped. Back at Shady Rest, or what remained of it, Price and his abductors got out of the car and went into the barbecue stand. As the long-legged patrolman sat on one of the porcelain tables, defending his innocence, Berger continued his tirade. Among other things, he insisted Price had tipped off the Sheltons that the cabin was unguarded prior to the attack, that he had informed officials at the Pocahontas Bank that the Berger gang had committed the robbery, and that, in general, he talked too much. Then he shot Price twice. Although seriously but not fatally wounded, Price was still denying the allegations when the second car pulled in. Rather proud of the night's work, Connie Ritter announced on entering, We've got rid of the woman and threw her in a pit north of Marion. The groaning patrolman was wrapped in a piece of canvas and taken to Newman's Chrysler. Much to that gangster's chagrin, it should be added, for his car was paid for and the Buick was stolen. Berger sat on Price's shoulder as Newman drove the car. Those in the Buick followed. Finding a guard at a mine shaft near DeCoin, they drove on, arriving at last at an abandoned schoolhouse. Had it not been for a steady rain, this tumble-down relic would have served as a final and fiery resting place for their old pal Lori. Their plan was to drive to the Okaw Bottoms, but because Newman's car was running low on gasoline, they pulled off the road near Du Bois in Washington County. Still pleading for what was left of his life, Lori Price was dragged or carried into a field and shot. The man who recounted the events of the night as effortlessly as he might have described a poker game claimed he and Freddie Wooten stayed in the car while the coup de grace was administered to the patrolman among the rattling, frozen weeds of winter. Next time. Rum runner and associate of thugs though he was, the young man in question was above killing an innocent woman, and he said so in the most scathing terms. Ritter was stunned. The less squeamish Ernest Blue, along with Ritter, fired the fatal shots. 